Well, tonight we explore just what it takes to make watching a cow be shot become a lot less horrifying. We also find out when working a 90-second shift qualifies you for hazard pay. An incredibly depressing nursery scene. Yes, it's the happiness of all mankind. The Chernobyl After Show starts now. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz Yes, welcome to the Chernobyl After Show for episode four, The Happiness of All Mankind. Think of us as the ray of sunshine in an otherwise gloomy world where we will certainly take the next hour to cheer you up and bring you just some of the really fun, happy things we saw this week on Chernobyl. I'm Christian Blatt, joined as always by my illustrious panel. Jeremy, say hello. It's a happy day. I'm Jeremy Dan from... The OSC Marshall Business School. And Julana. Hey guys, I'm Julana. Happy to be back for episode four. So see, there you use the word happy. Is that really a word that can be associated with this show ever, but especially after uh, episode four? Yeah, I mean, I'm sticking with the theme. That's what they're going with. So, <laughs> so you're just going to run with it. Let's just uh, just overall, I always like to start just overall feelings and, you know, isolate something that uh, that really stuck with you. Uh, you know, on a lot of shows would be like, what did you like the most? Well, that's not this isn't that <laughs> kind of show. But, uh, you know, if there's one single thing you can isolate as to what was the most powerful for you, Julana, what did you think as you watched this episode? I had two things. Can I do you, both of them? You're entitled to it. Okay, yes. great. And, and, you know, in, in the Soviet Union, we all share. So your two <laughs> will take the place of someone else's. <laughs> OK, so you don't get one. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> I've been rationed out. <laughs> yes, you have. So the two things that were stuck out to me the most were Pavel's journey. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I was really intrigued by the bio-robots. Just that term, bio-robots, yeah. which we will, we will spend a lot of the show talking about the bio-robots. Just the fact that, uh, you know, I guess that's the way you clinically have to look at that sort of thing is just call it uh, bio-robots. Yeah, I thought for about two seconds that maybe there was a, a Soviet technology we hadn't heard yeah. about and then I kind of could tell like, what it was going to mean. Is this Robocop? <laughs> exactly. This is like, it's about that time period. Uh, I'm like, this is going to be great. Oh no, that's what they meant. Uh, Jeremy, your thoughts just sort of an on the whole and if there's anything that you isolate from the episode. I'm going to take two as well. Oh, uh, oh my gosh, I, that leaves me with zero. But The anyway, very first scene with the cow yeah. and with the woman who refuses to leave, who's sure. just doing the everyday milking of the cow, as she's done for probably 60 years in that very spot, in that very barn, saying, I've seen such things from the czar, the revolution, the Germans, my own people. I've seen these things. Why should I leave for something I haven't seen? And then the, the soldier ultimately shooting the cow, which delivers it with more immediacy. And then the very last scene where Ludmilla, who we've been following and we had a lot of foreshadowing someone that took the ultimate precautions in the first episode and yeah. then in the, the last episode seemed to throw everything into uh, out, out the door in terms of um, wanting to show empathy and wanting to show yeah. uh, affection toward her dying husband and we see the effects of that with the empty crib in, in the very end in the middle of the maternity ward yeah, I mean, I think that uh, those those are uh, just two very powerful images, definitely bookending the whole show. Yeah, I think when the that soldier shot the cow, 
in some way that was more horrifying than him shooting her because that's what I expected. I was just like, oh, you're not going to leave? All right. And I think we were supposed to think that. And then he shoots the cow. And I'm not laughing because it was funny. It was just because I'm like, yeah, right. I guess that's one way to solve the problem. And, uh, you know, he, it, the incremental step of him angrily dumping out the milk, which, of course, they kind of, you know, dwell on anytime somebody does something like that because it's like, all right, so there's uh, irradiated milk in the ground. Yeah, and milk know? was one of the first places it showed up. Yeah. Th- that's how they discovered it in a lot of parts of Europe. They were getting within, I think, days and weeks irradiated milk. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I know that uh, I stopped drinking Russian milk really for this reason. I, up until that point, I, I didn't see any problem with it. But uh, you know, so it's been about thirty three years. Um, yeah, and yeah, I mean, gosh, we'll talk a lot uh, about Pavel uh, in a moment, but. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. And uh, if you're watching live in the chat, uh, let us know what you thought as the uh, episode went along, any of the things that uh, stand out for you. And if you're watching the archive version, please leave a comment and we'll try to get to you uh, next week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we – just there were just kind of interesting things that we see early on, you know, and I mean that sequence with you know, getting the woman out of there uh, – yeah, I mean, this is it was such a unique moment in history, and it's not something that happens very often that you're evacuating people because of a nuclear meltdown. Uh, and I can understand, you know, that that lady. It sort of reminds you, like when you see on the news, people who don't leave for a hurricane because they've been there for other hurricanes. And you know, I think a lot of times those people are probably able to, no pun intended, weather the storm. Uh, and uh, I don't. I think this lady just sort of had that mentality, you know. And it's just like, no, you, you're never coming back. This isn't just you can you can ride this out and then everything will be all right. Um, so, yeah, uh, the I, I, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the roof, but let's let's talk about Pavel, whom we meet, sort of this young, fresh-faced individual, and you know, he's he's asked, you know, where he served in Afghanistan and it turns out he's non-military and I guess that this is something that uh, Jeremy and I were uh, doing a little bit of extra side research about but I guess that those are what are considered the liquidators non-military people who it seems like they volunteer I don't, it doesn't really feel like they just you know draft able-bodied young men it seemed like it's more people volunteered out of a sense of obligation, maybe a sense out of out of fear of uh, you know being forced to do it anyway. But I don't know, uh, Juliana, you referenced his his journey. I mean, let's talk about him when we first meet him, and you know, I, I don't quite know what time period this covered, but it didn't seem like it was going to take very long for him to be, you know, who he is by the end of the episode. Right. I just thought for me it was interesting to see the journey because he comes in as such an innocent, not sure. really expecting, you know, there's no way he would have known what kind of job he was going to be given. Um, and I think he was probably given one of the hardest jobs, you know, killing something that's alive. And like Bacho told him, people experience this when usually when they kill their first man. But for him, it was a dog. Yeah. But that's just as bad, if not more sad, because a dog is even more innocent than a human or, you know, just any pets in general, I feel like. Yeah, I almost feel like this episode could be kind of mandatory viewing for somebody who just 
hates their job and thinks about how terrible it is. It's like, you know, it could be worse. And I think it's sort of interesting, kind of the camaraderie that uh, the two older soldiers have with him because they understand, you know, they're, they're definitely at a place where they've kind of come to terms with what it is that they're doing and they realize just how hard it is. Um, but, you know, they're showing him the ropes, Jeremy, you know, and it's like, well, here's basically, you know, your like lead underwear, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I thought that was – I also thought it was funny. He's like, no, no, outside your clothes, idiot. You know? Well, that relationship developed differently than I thought it would yeah. from the first few moments in the tent because in military movies and even in military reality, there's often a tradition of hazing and ignoring – more yeah, ignoring sure. than hazing the new person. Even in combat, you kind of ignore the new guy and often don't show him the ropes. If they can make it the first few weeks, maybe you start to invest in them. But Bacho really started to invest in the guy immediately, went to some of the other units, say, don't mess with this guy. This guy's mine. Give me the egg basket. And yeah. if anyone doesn't remember, that's the uh, protective uh, underwear for the uh, nether region. So he really invested in one to be protected. Um, wanted him to get comfortable, but knew that he wanted him to know the main rules. And the main rule was that no suffering. If you're going to shoot, make sure you do your job and you you kill these animals. And when yeah. he didn't do that, uh, Bacho got really ticked for the one moment. I thought he'd be getting ticked with him all episode, but he right. showed a lot of humanity, a lot of mentoring, and then that was really the only moment where he laid down the law. Yeah, and I think obviously that was important, and I sort of like the the you know you, there's very few moments of brevity in this series, but sort levity? of levity. Yeah, right. <laughs> I did say brevity. It was it was uh, it was brief levity. So that's uh, that's why I, I referred to it as that. But yeah, there there's not a lot of levity in the show. And, you know, basically when he's like, don't point the gun at me, you can point it at this other idiot. You know, that's fine, but uh, not at me. Because he was Georgian, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I, uh, yeah, and then obviously when Pavel, uh, you know, it just, it it took a split second for it to sink in for me when he gets into that kitchen and there's, you know, what, there's the mother with her entire litter of puppies. And, you know, at first... Uh, sorry, what's the older soldier's name? You have that in, in your notes. You said his name, right? Bacho. Bacho. See, I, I yeah, I I didn't want to call him Balto because that's an animated dog, and that just would bring it into a weird place. That's a real dog. That's well, a real story. I know, <laughs> I know him from yeah, from uh, the animated story. But uh, so yeah, Bacho. Uh, you know, he's just like, all right, you go outside. This is too much. You know, I, I don't even know that maybe not is not his first day at that point. It seems like his first day. He's definitely new on the job. And it's like, yeah, having to basically shoot an entire litter of puppies, just the way that they all look at him. And, and that was sort of the the horrifying advice that he got. It's like it's really easy at first because they're pets and they, they co- they'll come up to you and they trust yeah. you. So it's really easy to shoot them, you know, and it's just like, what am I listening to here? We, we see just in his first few days on the job what we think is maybe just a few days out there. He'd already gotten more proficient, yeah, better shot, true. walking around, loading the gun right, um, killing with the one shot. But uh, when he came upon that scene, he was brought back to being, you know, the teenager again. And again, that's another scene where... That dynamic with Bacho surprised me. I thought he was going to come up there and say, I talked to you about doing your job. Do it now. Yeah. But again, Bacho showed humanity and that he was someone that had a lot more experience from being in Afghanistan and was more of a hardened soldier and so took on that duty. Yeah. And I actually thought that 
we were being set up for you know him to you know run into I don't know a rabid dog or like a pack of dogs that you know are gonna be after him. I, I really thought because he was almost kind of nonchalant the way he was walking around. I'm like, oh, is you know is he gonna get kind of ambushed and have to you know because I mean that's one of the things they say is like, well, what do they eat? Will they eat chickens or you know each other? You know, and uh, which you know at this point the, the, the whole sequence is, is so horrible it's uh it's not much to think about but uh him just coming coming upon that was uh was yeah it was definitely very surprising and just you can imagine just how terrible it is and uh you know just to it's not something that i think i had ever thought about is of course you're going to have to kill the animals uh and we saw like packs of dogs running around earlier in the series and even then, I didn't think about, like, you're going to have to take those dogs out. You know, I don't know. Juliana, had you uh, given this much consideration before? I had thought about it because when I was doing the research about oh, genetics sure. and stuff, you know, I knew that they had to kill a lot of the farm animals because of the products that were coming from these radiated farm animals. Yeah. So I kind of had that foreshadowing. That yeah, I I feel like at some point, uh, I think dogs would have been justified in just saying like, "Look, I just want you, I want everybody to know we're not your best friend anymore." You know, like these guys think they had a reason, but they went around and just shot us. Um, but I think that I actually uh, wondered how much of it might have been not just making sure they didn't spread radiation, but it might have been the humanity in and of itself because the dogs would have been mutated and getting cancers and, and things like that. Yeah, I, I think I think it's, uh, you know, on a multiple of levels. And I, I don't think we have a sense for how far away uh, that city was that they were in. But uh, obviously it, it covered a pretty wide swath if you relocated so many people. Um, now, Jelan, I understand that you did – before we move on to another topic, I understand that you – did some research about animals, so this would probably be a good time to uh, share that with the audience. Yes, I did, and I was actually just going to say it's interesting about the dogs because I could see needing to kill farm animals that are giving you products that you're eating, obviously, sure. if you're consuming milk, cheese, things like that, meat, that's directly going into your body as a human being. But dogs, we don't really eat dogs, you know, so that could have been more so for their own genetics, so like you said, they don't start mutating and having yeah. offspring like that. But I was doing a lot of research as far as uh, now, in the area now, and it actually has turned into a very thriving wildlife habitat, and which I thought was interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. A lot of scientists um, thought that it would kind of be abandoned by all animals and all life because of the radiation. But it turns out that since there's been no human disruption, it's growing and the wildlife is thriving. And there's over 200 species that are living really well there, including bison, brown bears, wolves, mooses, um, reptiles. Now, I wonder, you know, because of where they are, you know, not that uh, I'm going to lead a hunting expedition there, but what if you say – wanted to try and eat one of those bison, you know, would that I wonder what level of contamination there is 30 plus years later. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's been a group of scientists that went on there and studied them because they're obviously in a very unique sure. area that's no like nowhere else in the world and um this article I read said there's still dangerous amounts of radiation there obviously, but basically the theories that they have concluded are that 
the animals have started adapting a lot faster than we expected mm-hmm. um, with living uh, with higher levels of radiation. And so there's two, two theories from what I found. One of them is that they have become more resilient, like I just said, or they're developing adaptations. And the other fact, the factors are the presence of radiation and the fact that there's no humans there. So the one theory that's a little more sad is that our human impact on animals everywhere else is a lot greater effect than we think it is. If you know what I'm saying, it's, if a, it's a greater is effect than, than radiation. radiation. Pretty much, yeah. If wildlife <laughs> I, is I thriving there, yeah. and not so well in other parts of the world, that's kind of scary for us. Sure. Well, yeah. something about the eating. Uh, I, I looked into this just a little bit, and I saw that even just a few years ago. I mean, maybe five or six years ago, there were some restrictions on um, sheep raising in certain parts of the UK because I think the sheep eating grass, moss, and other things, there was a a limitation on the kind of shepherding you could do even just a few years ago. And and I also read that I, I don't think hunters are allowed to eat wild boar even maybe even today or not supposed to in Austria and parts of Germany. Because because of uh, because I think they eat a lot of mushrooms and things that oh, okay. um, absorb maybe more radiation than most things, and so again, still even today, certain things that need to be paid attention to. Well, uh, something else that we should pay attention to, uh, Juliana, I believe, has a very important message for each and every one of us. The most important message of our show every week. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, guys? You already know. Before we move on to our next topic, we always want to say thank you so much for making us the ESPN of TV Talk. And it's time for you to help us in any way you can. If you're on YouTube right now, we would love if you would give us a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel. And if you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating if you've been enjoying our podcast. But no matter where you are, leave us a comment so you can get involved in our conversation. And we really do read them all um, after before every show. And we love to get back to people and hear what you guys are saying. Especially, I love reading the comments of people that were around the area and, and really lived through it and experienced it, like people in Europe and Ukraine and Russia. You were saying we've gotten comments from people that are not only watching Chernobyl in Ukraine, but they're watching our show as well. Right. So uh, that I, I, I never thought that uh, I would be, you know, I'd be a celebrity in Ukraine, <laughs> but uh, happy to happy to be you're, there. You're multi-continental. Look, it's but that's going on the back of my headshot. You know, as the huge in Ukraine. You're huge in Belgium. <laughs> Name the movie. Anyway. As singles. Yeah. But, uh, you, only for a certain a certain generation. Exactly. But in any case, uh, let's move on to The Roof uh, because we could have spent the whole show talking about that. But uh, I do want to carve out enough time. Um, Jeremy, just uh, sort of uh, – so Jeremy and I both did a little bit of uh, side research and we watched a – uh, a, I guess, Ukrainian documentary, which is, again, another thing that I never thought uh, would be on my uh, on my Netflix queue. I actually watched it on YouTube, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, and it was called Chernobyl 3828. And uh, I had kind of hoped to find out the the impact long term on on these people that we saw the 3828 people that were assigned to this roof duty the 90 second shifts that i referenced in the top of the show um and 
There's it seems to be a multitude of reasons why those numbers are not easy to come by. The first is that the you know dissolution of the Soviet Union in the very early nineties, you know, not you know, and these are also records that they didn't necessarily want to keep, and it, you have things associated with the disaster that just show the impact. Uh, we're, we've got some numbers at the end of the show uh, that Jeremy's going to share, but um, just kind of give an overview. Of, you know, for obviously not everyone has time to watch Ukrainian documentaries. Uh, just kind of, but it 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 really. It wasn't that long. It was like no, half an hour. No, thirty minutes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, talk a little bit about how that just reinforces what we saw in this episode. So, first of all, just seeing it, it's it is the videotape, you know, VHS recording yeah. of so many of the phases of this, from the managers, the executives, down just a few floors in yeah. the offices that somehow have some shielding. They're probably still getting a lot of dosing. You see them rig up the the lead on their just regular um, hazmat uniforms, uh, you know, so makeshift. So that was very realistic. Um, you see them going after the chunks and shoveling up small chunks, big chunks. I mean, that was just spot on in the the, the show we watched. Yeah, it, that that was the uncanny thing. Just to interject, it, it just how it seeing the the actual footage of people working on this, then you realize like, oh, that's exactly what it looked like on the show. You know, it just the uh, the attention to detail that they did on the Chernobyl series was really impressive. Yeah. It's told from the perspective of a guy, Valerie Starodimov, or Starodimov, who is the dosimetrist, do, do, dosimeter measuring the overall sure. impact of the radiation. A couple things interesting about him. He is the actual person that raised that flag at the end of, well, on this, uh, in the documentary and uh, inspired right. what happened in the show. Another interesting thing, I talked to you about this beforehand, there are three radiation exclusion zones in the world. One is Fukushima that happened about eight years ago in Japan. The other is Chernobyl. The third one happened in 1957, a place called Mayak, which was, I think, a weapons plant, a nuclear reactor in the Ural Mountains uh, more to the east. And this fellow in his childhood was there, I believe, the day that accident happened. So that's amazing that he... So what are the odds that you're going to be, you know, in and around two of the uh, exclusion zone? I mean, I... I, I, I'm not. So, I'm a little bit surprised that this gentleman wasn't on vacation in Japan when Fukushima happened. You know, just to sort of be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that was fascinating when he told me that. Yeah. Another interesting thing was the dynamic they had with the different people. So you had just normal workers around there, but the 3828, I believe, referred to the people that had to go to Masha, the most intense. Yes, I, I think that that that's specifically who they're talking about. So, yeah. um, but over the course of the whole experience with the radiation, they were limited to. 25 REMs. Now, we've heard of Rankins. REM is kind of the overall exposure over time, which means Rankin equivalent man. And <laughs> you, it's a maximum threshold of 25. And we heard, and we'll talk about a little bit more of the comparisons sure, later yeah. in our by the numbers, but um, we both found it interesting. Some workers at the place would. Um, leave their dosimeter, leave the their badges or what they call the calculators that measured their total doses behind because they knew they were good at this and they wanted to do their duty. And then others were trying to get out of their duty, 
handed their their calculator off to others, and those others were were fine to bring it up. Right. They wanted those people out of the way because they might screw things up for everyone else. Right. So like if 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 I worked the day shift and Jeremy was on the night shift, I'm like, hey, when you go, can you can you take my decimeter so that I get out of here a little sooner? And you'd be like, you know, these lazy day shift people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to do it because you know you being there. Uh, could really mess things up, and we do. I thought it was it, it was good to see the the one worker where uh, I don't know things couldn't have gone more wrong for him. You know, he like he, he gets stuck, he falls, uh, and so he's already there. It seemed like an extra fifteen twenty seconds, which shouldn't have been much, but obviously when you're limiting it to ninety seconds, and then of course there's a hole in his boot when he gets back in there. So they're like, all right, you're done. Yeah, that that line, I mean, yeah. I think it might have been the multiple meanings of done. You're done, yeah, exactly. I was under the impression that the guy didn't see the hole in the boot. Yeah, I don't know. You mean the, the boss guy didn't yes. see it? Yeah, I think you might be right. I, I think, uh, I, you know what, that's, that is, a, I didn't really take it that way, but now that you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, I don't, it, it would be hard mm-hmm. to see from that distance. The well, guy I wasn't right I guess we'll right see on. if it's like a foreshadowing thing next episode. But <sighs> yeah. one thing that I I saw in another um, interview was that this section was true to time, so it was actually 90 seconds. Right. I, I felt like that it must have been because I'm like, oh, this is, they're showing a lot of this, you know. And I thought, it, look, it, it's uh, – it, it, what the takeaway from this series is is about the Soviet people and just sort of their dedication to the cause. And, of course, there's exceptions. But, you know, just these people that want to work as hard as they can for these 90 seconds and you see like, you know, this other guy comes and helps one of them because the, the piece of debris was was just too big. So they're doing it in two shovels. And they said, don't look down. And I'm like, did everybody look down? Because it sure seemed like every single one of them was like, huh, how about that? And then they go back to it. But then uh, the, a little bit that I read is a lot of people in uh, with this task in particular all uh, had cataracts uh, later in life. That was one thing that they were able to isolate because the numbers that you are able to find online are like Ukrainians, you know, which obviously is not part of present day Russia, but they have like here's how many of us we feel like there were problems. You know, so there, there's a lot of estimating, and that was one of the things that I read. Um, Really quick yeah. on, on that duty, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we saw the his original training was in chemical and hazmats, the right. general that came in and said, if anyone's going to go do this measuring, I'm going to do it. Uh, so, I mean, that's someone that really did his duty. And we have General, uh, I think it was a General Tarakanov yes. today, and he's the one that gave the speech and about the 90 seconds and all of that. And you can actually witness that speech really being given in the the Ukrainian documentary. And it is, I mean, basically word for word, the translation. Uh, It is not dramatized in any way. Yeah, this will be the most important 90 seconds of your life is one of the things that he says. And, you know, obviously that cause in and of itself was very important, you know, yes, to the Soviet people, but also to the world. You know, I mean, if if if. You know, basically, if Chernobyl had happened and then, you know, everybody walked away and left it, obviously that would be uh, catastrophic uh, worldwide for a variety of reasons, including the the referenced, what, uh, two Hiroshima's every hour, uh, which at this point, uh, you know, I think Legasov has referenced one time too many because it's like, yeah, 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 we know, we know, we know. Um, but the – let's bring Legasov into this because – 
first they have the robots. And mm. we also see those robots, by the way, in this documentary. That was uh, kind of, you know, and I, it was just, I was looking at it. I'm like, this is exactly what I watched last night. Uh, but then the idea that robots aren't going to work and, you know, Lagasov says bio-robots. I know we referenced that earlier in the episode, but it's just like, who, whose mind goes to calling it that? You know, instead of, he just calls them bio-robots. Um, did uh, Juliana? Did you have a thought? Maybe like Jeremy and I referenced earlier in this episode that maybe it was, you know, some cyborg like Robocop or something. Or did you? The, were you just like, what does he mean by bio robots? Or did you know right away like, oh, he means people? I definitely didn't know that he meant people. Right. I kind of thought along the same lines as you guys. Like maybe he was extra smart and was referencing something that I yeah. didn't know. But then when you think about it. It kind of makes sense. But yeah, we're like all bio-robots. Right. Like you said, who would think – who would just call it that? Nobody would just be like, oh, I'm going to substitute humans for bio-robots. Right, which I guess is you know the way to kind of you know reconcile with your own conscience of like, hey, here's a suggestion that's mm-hmm. going to you know shorten the lifespan of about 4,000 people basically. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I mean that whole uh, – ordeal and endeavor was was really fascinating to watch. We sort of saw Sherbina and Lagasov trade places or trade techniques a little bit in that extended uh, scene or, or series of scenes where Lagasov um, has been more um, uh, emotional yeah, about this true. and insistent and he's the one that very kind of uh, coolly notes in a very leadership oriented way about the bio robots. I mean he's essentially talking about the disposability of people and how it has to be done. But we see Sherbina lose his cool for the first time. That poor phone. Still know? maybe a political move, but when he learns that the Soviets in um trying to get equipment from the outside world did not share the real information about radiation. It led to the equipment failures of the German Robot and and days of delays and ultimately probably the sacrifice of dozens of those people that were going to ultimately die of those uh, re, re, that radiation right and that yeah I mean just the the fact that the cover up never really stops because you know obviously it's just we're not going to we're not going to uh, share that information especially because just little things like well you know it was from West Germany which was the the free part of Germany, the the you know the well the western part of Germany, and was like, oh yeah, we're definitely not telling them about this. And you know, I, I thought it was very telling his frustration. We don't even see it; we just hear him. And he's like, I know they're listening. I hope they're listening. I want Gorbachev to hear this, you know. And uh, you know, his frustration, I think, fi- literally reached the boiling point at that point. And I think. He and Lagasov are actually very well suited to the task that they were paired up for, as we see over the course of these four episodes, because of the simple fact that uh, they understand the gravity of the situation and what's required. And uh, it uh, it really leads into the uh, the conversation they have with Ulana late in the episode, which is setting up our finale next week. This notion of well, this is your chance to tell the truth. And then, of course, Sherbina's like, yeah, well, you can tell the truth, but, you know, they're they're going to kill your family and your friends. And, you know, and, and just sort of having to reconcile all of that um, 
you know, I, it's uh, we obviously have a sense for where things go because of the way the, the series started. But uh, Julana, as we're watching that, um, what do you think about sort of the there's two there's very distinct cases made, uh, you know, I, I, I and I was just sort of wondering uh, where you came down, you know, Ulana trying to convince Lagasov and Shurbina like, don't, don't be stupid, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, before that, I'm just backing up a little sure. bit. I'm very like the last three episodes. I'm like, OK, I'm kind of getting a grip for, you know, how the Soviet Union functioned and all that. And it's like every episode, it just they do something else that continually makes me be like, what? Yeah. Like the whole fact of him lying, you know, like what you're just talking about. When I was watching that, I was like, this is just dumb. They right. literally, their attitude to protect the state at the cost of whatever lives, but also they're just wasting people's time. They're wasting the Germans' time making this robot that they think is going to work that they know isn't going to work. They're wasting Lagasov's time putting it through the motions and all those people for nothing. Right, and and as we saw at the beginning of the series, is nobody wants to be the one of like, wait, who told the West Germans how strong the radiation right. is? Well, why did you do that? And then they get shot, you know? <laughs> so it's like... The, so someone in the in the process is like, yeah, that robot's not going to work. But we're, you know, I've been told to get this robot, so I'm going to get this robot. But I'm also not going to give the information that would get the, the an effective robot. Yeah. Well, th- they're talking about two opportunities to do this in yeah. that scene with the three of them. One is the internal trials and all of that when uh, uh, Fomin, uh, Bryukhanov, and uh, Dyatlov. And maybe others, but uh, are, are going to be on trial for this. Yeah, and that would be mostly internal. Uh, but by being internal, it could just be hushed easily, and that's why Komyak is a fan of when you go to the international conference. That's when you have to make your play, and and we have a very interesting dynamic because she is essentially calling on Lagasov to fulfill what he told her in the previous episode. We we referenced that that he said, follow this no matter where you think, where, no matter where it's going, follow the truth and find the cause. And I, we thought it foreshadowed showed a little bit the fact that he might have been involved in some of the research that led into that. And we find out in this episode, I mean, not that he caused this in some way, but he knew parts of the story right. a decade before a part of the way that this could fail. So he could maybe make up for it by in that international setting in the international atomic energy hearings by revealing a lot more than the Soviets, the Soviet government wants him to. Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously there is that, uh, that realization, you know, that the, so they warned the Kremlin in, in this report that, you know, uh, that Lagasov didn't write, a colleague of his wrote, but he was certainly aware of what had happened in, I, I guess it was a, 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 I don't know if it was an actual meltdown in 1975. It wasn't anything even remotely uh, on this level. It was a failure. And then they realized what the problem was. And of course, they they warned everybody and in, in, in true KGB fashion. It's like, well, we'll just classify this report so that uh, no one knows that this could happen. What was interesting about that was when Komyok went to the archive and she asked for whatever, how many of her documents, a full page of documents, yeah. and the archivist, maybe the Communist Party appointed right. archivist, points to the one and said, you can have this. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was to limit her yeah. or to enable her to find 
that. So right, because that's a great point. Because in the moment, it seemed like you're going to basically get the one that's going to give you the least information. Mm-hmm. But maybe it was just like you're going to waste your time if you read those <laughs> other ones. This is actually the important one. Mm-hmm. And it was somebody who just realized you know, the importance of that. Uh, so I, I think that there has to be some guilt at his own personal uh, – you know, not even responsibility, but just knowing – that this could have been prevented. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't know what you do though in Soviet Russia in 1975 if the if you have this sort of a warning and the KGB classifies it. I, I think you do what they did, which is like, all right, well, we tried, um, but it's just the the idea that you know, and it's 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 just interesting because it's such a minor thing. They t- he talks about the these control rods have graphite tips, so boron is not the first thing that goes in after the reset. So obviously, when they did the test, they did everything, and then when they reset it, these graphite tips go in, and that's why all of a sudden the meltdown starts and the explosion. And it's it's such a minor thing, and uh, Jeremy, this kind of ties into something we talked about in our first episode, that when you boil down what happened in the Challenger disaster, which is the same year, it was these these O-rings that uh, I think that they expanded when they weren't supposed to, and in the in the in they had the gotten hearing, cold, they got and cold. They lost some of their and, flexibility. And in the hearing, somebody just dipped it into a glass of water, and we're like, "Well, look what happened when I did this." And just having that simple. So this is this is another one of those things where it's just such a minor detail and like there have been space shuttle uh, disasters since that it's just like one like tile you know comes off and then all of a sudden it, it becomes a disaster so it's it's fascinating and of course horrifying that just such a minor detail is what causes uh, all of this and I can I can see Lagasov being torn about what he should do, what he knows is the right thing, but what he's actually going to do. Uh, and we'll get to our special segment in a moment. But Jeremy, just uh, kind of tying up this, what what are your thoughts as you're watching all that unfold? You know, the the both very compelling cases. One is the importance of the truth. The other is the importance of you know Living. not to, not taking a bullet. Yeah. I wondered, going back to the beginning of the whole series, how much that set of recordings would either complement information that he revealed sure. versus make up for the information that he didn't reveal. Remember, you know, his suicide, what, what was it, two years to the minute? I think it was uh, 88, yeah. Two years to the minute afterwards. So we are about six or seven months after the accident at this point. he is He's probably thinking he's going to get cancer, but we... In the next episode, I think it plays out over months of hearings and and all of that. I, I sort of don't... That, I, that question you just asked leads to some of the human drama and the ethical dilemma that is going to help us define the character of Lagasov in that, that next episode. So to answer your question, I don't know. It's one yeah. of the things I really look forward to finding out about this character. I know he's going to be well acted by uh, Jared Harris in, in, in next episode when there's a lot of dilemmas they have to face on this. And just to point out quickly, I know we're almost done, but we forget that in real life, Lagasov had a family, which yes. is not pictured and shown in the show for simplicity reasons, but he was a real person with a real life, so he had a strong incentive to not want to die. It's a great point because watching the show, you might think like, oh, he doesn't have a family, he's a bit of a loner, you know, maybe he can take that chance, mm-hmm. but then when you Just actually the have cat. the family, which is true, he does have the cat. 
Uh, and then uh, before we get to our special segment, um, let's just talk about the end of the episode, which is just sort of the the explanation that I guess uh, we don't even actually, you know, we see we see her go into birth and Lana just sort of references she keeps tabs on her and the fact that the baby lived for four hours uh, because it soaked up all the radiation and it should have killed her. But because she had the baby, the baby actually saved her life and just – what sort of a, a terrible and just that image of of her, uh, you know, just looking into the mirror at the end of the episode, and we see the the very empty uh, crib that is there. Uh, just, just uh, you know, a, a terrible ending for a story that we saw where it was going over the last few weeks, but it still didn't make it any any uh, easier to digest. And what an amazing quote from U- U- Ulana Komyak: "We live in a country where children have to die." To save their mothers. Someone yeah. has to start right. telling the truth. And then we see the ultimate symbol of that with that empty bassinet, that empty crib. Yeah, um, we've uh, we've already gone a little bit over, but I do want to get to our by the numbers. So, uh, Jeremy, take a, a moment and uh, give some of these numbers. Yeah, some of these things because it's in different currencies. It's in metric. It's in uh, measures of radiation. We kind of don't know the full scope of this. So, first of all, just really quickly, we talked about some of the monies involved with some of these rewards and whatnot. In this case, the workers on the roof got the bonus, the uh the bonus of 800 rubles that was about a thousand dollars at the time or about yeah. two two thousand dollars today okay um which you feel like in the soviet union a thousand dollars had some buying power you know but maybe not but. it would have been i think about uh one one fifth one sixth i think of the annual income at okay. that time uh we heard about the 25 uh excuse me in, our, in the documentary, we hear about the 25 REMs that people right. were to be exposed to. But we also heard that um, 100 is what they were often getting to. The people that finished the process did more shifts, did more roof time because they were the better workers and really wanted to see this to its fruition. Uh, for a little bit of comparison, in U.S. government um, standards, the limit you can be exposed to on an annual basis is 5 REMs. So this was in a matter of a couple of weeks. They were being exposed to 20 times that annual level. And if we're to believe government reports, I read one today, that no person in the U.S. government employ, and we're talking healthcare workers, obviously, but also people that work on nuclear submarines and things like this, no person in the past 30 years has been exposed to more than two REMs in a year. That's right. just from a little bit of preliminary research, but they just casually exposed themselves to 50 times. Right. Well, not casually, but did over a period of days or a couple of weeks uh, more. We looked into some of the overall uh, deaths and, and impact over the long term. Of the 600,000 um, liquidators, yeah. there was a study, um, and a lot of this is informal, as you mentioned. Right. Not the best numbers were tracked, plus the breakup of the Soviet Union compounded this, that 60,000 of the 600,000 liquidators were believed to have died by 2006, by 20 years after. Now, right. these were people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe even older, so a lot would have died. But there's some numbers that in Belarus, the number of cancers were estimated to be four times yeah, I saw that one, actually. Yeah. Succeeding 
years. And there's still um, a lot of these workers today are still fighting for rights and compensation. And they've, they've formed unions. In Estonia, people do actually get a, um, a yearly stipend today if they were one of these people that suffered this. And I think there's about 10,230 euro per year, which is you know approximately $300 for putting yourself in that kind of harm. So there's some numbers that kind of give you the effects, but also the state not stepping up to the plate. It makes you really hope that we do what's right for the 9-11 workers and sure. all kinds of other people that work to defend and, and, and heal us. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, thank you, Jeremy, for those numbers. And uh, we will, uh, I'm sure, have more numbers next week, which will actually be our uh, finale because uh, it is only a five-episode uh, series. And it will be fascinating to see where it all goes. So uh, we will be back next Tuesday at 9 Pacific. Uh, so thanks to everybody who uh, watched uh, tonight. And uh, we will see you then. Julana, where can people find you in the meantime? You guys can follow along with me. I'm on Instagram, at Julana, and I'm also doing a new after show here on Tuesdays right before this one. It's a, so- a show called Songland. And uh, Jeremy, where can people find you? Songland. It's about the opposite of, of this Songland. kind of thing. So- yeah, it sounds a lot different. Very yeah. happy. <laughs> uh, you can find me here next week, of course, but also in the Game of Thrones after show. And this is the, kind of the series after show. We have one more that we know of, and we'll be here next Sunday checking that out, talking about our views of the entire sweep of the final season and of the series. Uh, And you'll be able to find me Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific. We'll be doing a special early episode of the Twilight Zone After Show because it will be the second, uh, sorry, the first season finale. So uh, you can find that there. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. Thanks so much, everyone. We will see you next week. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menounos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the host only. do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.